From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new lawsuit aims to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in Colorado. We'll talk through what it claims and what's next. Then, it's easy to say we want to save water and help the environment, but when it comes down to it, are you willing to make the changes necessary to do so? And later, in 1915, a young couple put down roots in northeastern Colorado. Today, five generations later, that same family is still hard at work there, farming the land. I don't think the family farm's going to go away. I think families still want to be able to farm together. I feel like we are seeing that a lot of those farms are growing in acreages and numbers because it's necessary to be able to still be profitable on those operations. We'll take a look at the perseverance it takes to become a centennial farm, a business operating at least 100 years and counting. I decided to donate my car to Colorado Public Radio. I tried to get it fixed, and our mechanic very kindly and gently told us that that was useless. It seemed like a good idea to give it to someone who would get something out of it. And the first thing that came to mind was Colorado Public Radio. A person came out, and I had to sign my name in two places, and it was that simple. I would strongly suggest it to anyone that wants to get rid of an old car. We did it online, and it worked out great. If you have a car to donate, it's easy to do at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There's a new effort to try to keep former President Donald Trump off the ballot in Colorado next year. And it hinges on the U.S. Constitution. Public affairs reporter Benta Berkland has been covering this story, but she has jury duty today. So her editor, Megan Verlee, joins us now to fill us in on the details of this case. Hi, Megan. Hey, Chandra. I'll do my best uh, Benta impression here, but she would be a a much better (laughs) guest if she were available. (laughs) So what we're talking about here is a lawsuit filed in the federal district court for Colorado. It argues that Trump can't hold office because he has committed insurrection against the United States. Megan, lay it all out for us. Okay, so a little history lesson here. This goes back to the 14th Amendment, which was adopted after the Civil War, and it contains a provision that was included to prevent former Confederate officials from rejoining the government. Mm. Uh, It says basically anyone who commits insurrection or rebellion against the United States cannot hold elected office. And the lawsuit argues that Trump's actions after the 2020 election, his effort to find votes in Georgia, his spreading of false claims of election fraud, and most importantly, his role in the January 6th storming of the Capitol, the rally uh, that kind of worked people up beforehand, as well as not uh, attempting to convince his supporters to leave the Capitol for several hours, that all of those reach the definition of insurrection under the Constitution. Who filed the lawsuit? The group behind it is the Center for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, known as CREW. They're a liberal watchdog group, but the plaintiffs in the suit are six Colorado voters. They're a mix of Republicans and unaffiliated, basically people who will be able to vote in the Republican presidential primary next year and so arguably have standing to challenge who goes on that ballot. Now, this is a pretty major charge that Trump is barred from being on the ballot by the Constitution. Did that idea start with this lawsuit? Well, it's been kicked around a lot in editorials and academic papers. Uh, so it's it's been out there in the discussion for a little bit little while. Uh, this is the first 
big lawsuit to make this claim. There was a case in Florida that got dismissed quickly for lack of standing. Um, And the group crew uh, did successfully make the same 14th Amendment argument in a case in New Mexico uh, recently that ended with a county commissioner being barred from office for his role in January 6th. So why sue in Colorado as opposed to some other state? That is a great question that those of us who cover Colorado politics and always feel like we're at the center of things have kind of noticed and wondered about. Uh, According to the Associated Press, the group picked Colorado in part because the state allows challenges like this to go straight to the courts, doesn't have to go through an administrative process, and they want to move quickly because our ballot has to be certified by January 5th of next year. The folks behind it, though, said they do expect to file similar cases in other states and that they really expect this issue to end up at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Colorado lawyer Mario Nicholas is one of the attorneys on the case. Uh, He spent a lot of his career uh, representing Republicans and Republican candidates, but became unaffiliated a few years ago. Uh, And this is how he describes the voters who signed on to be plaintiffs here. They believe in the rule of law and they believe in the importance of our Constitution. The Constitution is more important than any individual candidate. And that's at the heart of this lawsuit. One thing that's kind of interesting about this suit, they filed it against the Trump campaign and Colorado Secretary of State. She's a Democrat. She, mm. I would believe, would be represented by the attorney general who's a Democrat. Uh, so two Colorado politicians who've been very outspoken critics of President Trump, former President Trump, uh, have been will have to potentially defend his wow. <laughs> uh, access to the ballot here. So what has the reaction been like to the lawsuit? Well, in a post on Truth Social late Monday, Trump dismissed the 14th Amendment idea. Uh, He wrote, quote, it's just another trick being used by radical left communists, Marxists and fascists to again steal the election. Uh, The Colorado GOP weighed in. It sent a fundraising email uh, branding the people behind the suit as despicable malcontents and uh, saying they're attempting to rob Colorado voters of their options. Uh, But not all the criticism is coming from Trump and his supporters. Uh, I'll note that Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who is definitely not a big fan of Trump, uh, told The Wall Street Journal that this attempt uh, really runs the risk of further disillusioning voters who believe the system is rigged against them uh, and are going to feel like they are being deprived of a choice they want to be able to make. So what happens next? Well, now we watch and see how the legal case unfolds. Like I said, it has to move relatively quickly because the ballot will be certified for the primary early next year. Uh, And I believe we expect a hearing within a week that will lay out the timeline. Thank you, Megan. (laughs) Thanks, Chandra. That was CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee with an update on a new lawsuit that is attempting to get former President Donald Trump disqualified from the presidential ballot here in Colorado. Our thanks to Vincent Berkland for her reporting on this story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You expect context from CPR News, but sometimes the news won't wait. Sign up for the Lookout daily email from CPR News, a rundown of important fact-based reporting in your inbox every day. And when major news breaks, you'll also get Lookout alerts. Sign up at CPR.org slash Lookout. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. In 1915, a young couple put down roots in northeastern Colorado. David and Anna Amon built themselves a sod house and started a family farm. Well, today, the fifth generation of that family is still at work there. 
History Colorado recently named Amon Angus Farms a 2023 Centennial Farm. That's a farm or ranch that's at least 100 years old and still operating. I'm joined now by David and Anna's great-granddaughter, Wendy Lewis. Wendy, welcome to the program. Thank you. I think a lot of people these days are lucky if they even know their grandparents, but five generations, that's got to be pretty rare. What does it mean to you to have family ties dating back that far and for the younger generation to be following in your grandparents' footsteps, still farming? Yes, it's very exciting for us here. Definitely as a child growing up, my most precious memories were times with our family where we always worked together. I've never really known anything else other than working together as a family. So as a child, I knew my great grandpa and didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. But then working side by side with my grandpa, my dad, and now my husband and I are here. And now our son-in-law is now back in the farm with us as well. And so what what a great privilege it is to always be surrounded by our family and to have us continue to just be invested in agriculture. It's pretty exciting for us. Yeah, it definitely feels very special. Tell me a little more about the first generation, your great-grandparents that you just referenced, David and Anna Amen. Mm -hmm. So they actually are German by just their customs and, and descent, but they were living in Russia at the time. And though many of those individuals from that particular area where they are from came over in the early 1900s. And uh, my great-grandparents actually came originally to the Nebraska area and started there and eventually moved over to the Western Slope and then finally veered more this direction. They had found this farm where we are at today and they began with not very much there was four brothers that all came together and they purchased a section and then split that up so that each of the four brothers um, had a quarter. So we've had many descendants in this area who have farmed and been in agriculture for a long time. What do you know about what they planted and how successful the farm was at that time? Yeah, the farms at that time were very diverse. My grandpa would tell us a lot about sugar beets. That was one of their dominant crops that they grew, but they would have a variety of corn and wheat and sugar beets and alfalfa. And then my grandpa grew up with Hereford cows. They had milk cows, they had chickens. He eventually added pigs to the operation as well. And of course, everything that they would have done from both a livestock and farming standpoint would have been done by horse. So it would have been very, very labor intensive. He spoke a lot about what it took to grow a lot of those crops. And a lot of those things were all done by hand. And so when you were raising something like sugar beets, you had to go through and weed and thin those beets out. And so their labor levels were definitely a lot different than what we're used to today. Definitely sounds like a lot of work. Very intense. (laughs) Now, let's talk about the next generation. That would be your grandfather, Walter. He Mm -hmm. won a special designation from History Colorado as well as a centennial farmer, which is somebody who's at least 100 years old and has been in agriculture for most of their life. Sadly, he died in July at age 101 before he could receive that award I can imagine that must have been a bittersweet moment for your family. It was. The um, important piece of that for us was that we'd actually received the letter 
that he had um, received the award. And so he did get to read that, mm-hmm. um, which was very, you know, just just a blessing for him to see that he had um, received that and been designated as a centennial farmer. We're thankful that he he knew it was definitely a important moment for him. And just the fact he'd often tell us he was very excited to get to 100 years old and uh, was pretty thrilled with that in the first, you know, the first ride anyway. And he would often tell us that, you know, there's not very many my age around anymore. And uh, <laughs> we would definitely agree with him and that he was right. <laughs> I understand that by the time he was born, there was an actual farmhouse, a little more than a sod house. What was it like for him growing up there? He was born in 1922. They had finished their house in 1921, and they called it the big house on the hill, which it did seem very large in those days compared to their sod house they were in previously. He would have grown up with his um, three sisters and brother, and Mm. they all worked on the farm with their parents. Their school was a uh, like a one-room schoolhouse, of course, that was close. And it was actually called the Amon School. He did go to high school at our one of the closest um, nearby towns at Crook, Colorado. So he graduated from Crook High School. Um, but then after that, he chose to remain on the farm. And so Grandpa never knew anything other than being involved in farming and ranching. Can you share with us one special memory of Walter? Oh, one of the things that as grandkids, we probably all loved is he was known for always greeting us um, with a little pinky wave. And so he would always wave wherever he was located at, whether he was sitting on the tractor or he was on his four-wheeler or just, you know, around the farm. And he would greet you with his little pinky waving at you. And so for us as grandkids, that was his signature thing about grandpas. He would always greet us that way. And probably one of the most sweet memories for us was just to watch him do the things he loved to do. But he was an inventor and he loved to create things that helped on the farm. So anywhere from maybe something that would help us get through a gate more easily or it was an actual piece of equipment. He he built three different loaders and his most recent one, he had used a bus chassis and then created it into a loader that we could use for a loader on our operation. Mm. And he was a figurer and a thinker. So he would sit at the kitchen table and simply draw and draw and draw and draw and figure things out and you know write out exactly how he wanted everything to work. And he'd do that for a long time prior to ever starting into a project. One of my favorite times would always be to just be able to tinker down with grandpa in the shop and just enjoying seeing what he's doing. And we got to do a lot of um, organizing things and and, and cleaning the shop and, and things that you should do when you're the kid watching. But those were always fun times to just be around and just watch him think and build and be so innovative, which was kind of, again, one of the things that made him very unique to us as our grandpa. You stole the words right out of my mouth. I I was thinking inventive, innovative, and forward thinking. That sounds like how you described him. Yes, absolutely. Did that play a role in you deciding to carry on the family tradition? Yeah, for sure. Between my grandpa and my dad, uh, my dad had the opportunity to farm with grandpa all of his life as well. And so getting to see that as a young person and being a part of that, and I was, 
you know, that was what I did as a kid. I would usually go with grandpa and dad and, and help them out on the farm. And, and so, yes, definitely the things that they did and what they instilled in us, they were definitely stewards of the land and their goals were always to make something better and leave it better for the next generation. I'm thinking of your grandfather in the Depression, in the mm-hmm. Dust Bowl, World War II. Those were mm-hmm. big challenges. What did Walter say it was like for him? Those were some of the the times that he would like to share with us a lot. Like he'd tell us a lot of different stories about those. The Dust Bowl definitely was one that left a very vivid picture. They'd get sent home from school because you could see nothing. Um, everything was pretty traumatic. And it definitely left a taste of just what the difficult times can be like. And that would have been anywhere, not just in agriculture at the time. But when you're caring for livestock and crops, I think it just puts that much more pressure on you when the weather is is something that's hard to manage. Um, and the depression, he'd often share different things with us. One thing that was probably helpful to farm families is that they did grow their own food and so they at least had, you know, some staple products mm-hmm. that they had a little more available than maybe somebody who had lost their job in town or things like that. So that was probably a benefit to him. And I think he looked at it and was so grateful that they were on a farm. Um, but he often talked about how the eggs from the chickens and the cream from the dairy cows, that was really their food money. If they could sell a little bit of cream or they could sell a few eggs, that was what helped them be able to to go to town and buy a few groceries. And so those were some of the things that helped them through. And World War II was, you know, just kind of all fit in there together as those different components kind of came through the time frame that he was very actively involved in his operation. And I, one of the things that um, when he would tell my husband, Matt and I, he would share when he watched his friends have to head off to world war ii and he because he was a sole owner of a operation he didn't he didn't get called to go but he would always tell us with tears in his eyes of watching his friends leave on the buses but then they never came home Mm -hmm. so it was those parts of our history that you mentioned um, gosh they were very pieces of his lifetime that he looked back at and had very uh, vivid memories of what was going on then. Well, he farmed for a long time. How would you say technology changed over those years? Oh boy, technology changed substantially. He always told us when I would ask him, you know, what's some of the, the most important technological advancements you've seen, Grandpa? Always, inevitably, he would answer rubber tires. (laughs) <laughs> and I would be like, well, what do you mean rubber tires? You know, it's like, cause that's to us, that's absolutely nothing because everything's a rubber tire now. And he said, no, you don't understand. He said, when we went from horses pulling equipment to being able to have tractors pulling equipment and then to actually get rubber tires, not metal tires, but rubber tires, he said, that was huge. That was a big change in what we were capable of doing. And it was such an important piece of moving forward in in his mind, that was technology was to have a rubber tire, but now he's seen everything. I mean, he's went all the way up to where we have GPS systems in our tractors where the tractors can primarily do the majority of the driving and they can spot one individual weed and, you know, we can spray that weed and not spray the next weed because it's not the same. And, and yet still, if I asked him um, this summer, what was the most technologically advanced thing you've seen, he would have still told me rubber tires. 
<laughs> well, I can't say that I've heard of metal tires, so I would imagine it was pretty a big a pretty big change at the time. <laughs> yes. Yes. And also in the old days, they did flood irrigation, which meant they basically flooded the fields and somebody had to sit out there and wait until they had enough water and turn the spigots off. And your grandfather did that. <laughs> yeah, he, he he loved to tell us the story of so that they, they would have flood irrigated a lot of their row crops. So if we were in a field of corn, then you'd have a ditch up at one end and you would use a tube that would basically siphon the water out of the ditch to let it flow down the row. And so grandpa would tell us that when he set the water at night, rather than go back to the house, he would go down to the end of the row and he would just go ahead and go to sleep down there at the end of the row. And then if the water got to you, you knew it was time to go change the water. Um, <laughs> kind so of an we, alarm we system. Love that story. <laughs> a, a very unique alarm system. Exactly. Very unique. And sometimes we always wondered, okay, Grandpa, were you, were, did you, how often did you do that? Are you pulling our leg that you did that all the time? <laughs> so uh, He sounds like a character. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next generation was your dad, Ken, and now yes. you and your husband run the farm. And I understand your adult children are also involved. What has held this together for you as a family all these years? Mm. Without question, I would say that just um, having a strong faith, a faith in God as our provider and also in our family as a unit continues to keep us together and keep us wanting to continue the operation and continue that process that our um, generations before us started. And so I think just that piece of it is what continues us the desire to want to stay together and keep farming together and continue our farm. No family spats? You know, there's always going to be in any any time, there's always going to be, but I would say it's pretty minimal around here. <laughs> wow, impressive. <laughs> so more and more agriculture is becoming big industry. And we often hear that the family farm is going away. Do you agree with that? I don't think the family farm is going to go away. I think families still want to be able to farm together. I feel like we are seeing that a lot of those farms are growing in acreages and numbers because it's necessary to be able to still be profitable on those operations. Now, that's not to say that we haven't seen continued growth in just you know corporate agriculture in different ways, but our hope would be that even as farms get larger in size, they'll still maintain that family unit that's running that operation. Um, and that would kind of be, you know, our hope that that's the direction agriculture will go. Are you growing different crops and raising different animals than earlier generations in your family? There is some differences. There's not as many different products. There They would have had a lot more back then just because it, to some degree it was necessary we become a little bit more specialized and not quite as diverse in the number of crops and livestock that we grow. So, so yes, we, we primarily grow corn and alfalfa and we have a lot of irrigated grass that we both hay and also utilize for our cows for grazing purposes. We also only have cattle on the operation now. So there's not the additional livestock products that we would have used to have had back when it was my grandpa and great grandpa at the time. So we, we primarily only raise cattle and we have purebred cattle now. So it's kind of become a little bit more specialized 
because we sell bulls to other producers to use in their breeding programs. And then we also have added through the years, my dad started a Pioneer Seed Agency where we sell Pioneer Seed for um, the company Pioneer. You know, as I mentioned, a lot of family farms, I don't know that they're necessarily going away, but I think they're growing in size and growing in the different um, business entities they probably have as part of their operations. And that's kind of how our farm has been too. It's become a little more specialized and then a little bit larger in the things that it does. Wendy, thanks so much for sharing your family story with us. You're very welcome. That was Wendy Lewis, who co-owns Amon Angus Farms, located about 20 miles from Sterling in Northeast Colorado. History Colorado recently named it a 2023 Centennial Farm, the annual award that honors farms and ranches, individuals and agribusinesses that are at least 100 years old. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the 1880s, if you were somebody, the place to be was the Hotel de Paris in Georgetown, Colorado. It was the brainchild of a man who called himself Louis de Puy. Born in France with a different name, he squandered an inheritance with fast living, tried the seminary, culinary school, journalism, the French and American armies, deserting each one. Then an explosion in silver plume ended his mining career, and Georgetowners took up a collection, money he used to pop the top of a former bakery and turn it into a hotel. Soon, high society was checking in, drawn by fine French cuisine, an astounding wine cellar, and lavishly decorated rooms, but only if Dupuis allowed. This house is my own, he said, and if I want guests, I invite them in which he did for the creme de la creme before dying of pneumonia, October of 1900, in room 13 of the Hotel de Paris. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With support from Mint's Law Firm in Lakewood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Westerners are concerned about water supplies. Half of people in a conservation in the West Pole say it's a serious crisis. But that doesn't mean people make choices as consumers that line up with their concerns. We're going to talk about that with the psychology professor. But first, Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook takes us to a laundromat that aims to convince customers that their clothes can be cleaned using less water. The sun shining through a wall of windows at the front of Laundry on the Facts in Aurora. The owner here is Yamani Habtizgi. He's in a blue mechanic suit. He bought this laundromat in 2010, so he could be his own boss. And then when I look at it, I love it. And now I like to develop laundromat for the rest of my life. Habtizgi grew up in Eritrea, which shaped the way he thinks about water. I grew up in a city in Asmara. They have running water. But in the villages, I see a lot of people, they carry water or they use donkey or any other source to bring water to their homes from the river. They did that miles-long trek every other day. So when Habtiski moved here, he already knew the value of water. On top of that, he lives in Aurora, which is steadily growing and worries about where it'll get its supplies in the future. When Habtizgi took over this spot, he replaced all the top-loading washers with front-loaders that used half as much water. So if I can't save water, I save life. But his customers were not happy. Habtizgi says the main complaint was people couldn't see the water swishing around anymore. A lot of customers didn't come back. The business lost money. We tried to save 
water, but we lost our business almost. In here today, I ask a customer named Connie, who lives in Aurora, whether she'd be bothered if she couldn't see water going around in a washing machine. Would you feel like the clothes weren't being cleaned? Yeah. Yes. I want to see it. Really? <laughs> I want to see my suds and all that. In general, people are not inclined to make sustainable choices if it goes against what we believe to be true, says Leif Van Boven, a professor of psychology at the University of Colorado Boulder. We form these associations with what works and what we have confidence in. And when that changes, we start to question whether it is as effective. It's notably true when it comes to cleanliness. People tend to think that when products are good for the environment, especially cleaning products, that they're less effective. We've been conditioned to smell a certain artificial scent and associate it with being clean. Van Boven says what's ultimately most environmentally friendly is consuming less of something. Because there's really no way to produce things that we consume without having some kind of environmental impact. And yet, people do not like being told to consume less, especially with water. For Habdesgi, it was scary to lose almost all his business back in 2010. To save laundry on the facts, he had to get rid of the new washers that customers didn't like. It cost the business about $50,000. But he found a way so that he didn't have to compromise on his desire to cut water. It is a part of business. You have to listen to the customers. They teach me a good lesson, and then now, instead of uh, more small machines, we have bigger machines, and a lot of people, they can use a bigger laundry in one machine. That means we save more water. Today, Laundry on the Facts is thriving with bigger, front-loading washers. They can help people save water even if you have laundry at home. To wash a bunch of blankets or dog beds, you can take them to a laundromat. Wash them all at once, rather than using dozens of gallons per load, washing them one at a time at home. And these big washers Habtizgi has now are also front loaders, which the EPA says are the most efficient by far for water and energy. Most importantly, customers like Connie are happy. They're beautiful. I love it because I can put all these clothes in one machine. I asked Kaptizki, why do you think people are happier with these ones than they were with the first batch of water-efficient washers? They have the clear windows, the glass, they can see water. When they see the water, they feel very comfortable. The swishing, of course. Now we have more customers than before. Better technology, not really a broad change in attitude, has meant Kaptizki can keep the business and save water. Rachel Esterbrook, CPR News. Now let's talk more with Professor Leif Van Boven, who you heard in Rachel's story. He studies environmental decision-making at CU Boulder. Welcome to the program. Hi, Chandra. Thanks for having me on. What kinds of sustainable choices are people willing to make? And by contrast, which ones are usually off the table? Well, let me... um... I want to first of all just kind of acknowledge that the nature of this conversation is actually quite different than we might have had 15 or 10 years ago. So the vast majority of people recognize the reality of climate change, are concerned about taking actions to address climate change and to and to take actions that are more sustainable. So we're not really having this 
debate that we used to have about whether these are even uh, real concerns that we should do something about. Instead, we're having this discussion about what are the best actions that we can take. So the first point that is really important to appreciate is that the most important thing we can do to reduce our um, climate impact, to make more sustainable decisions, is simply to consume less, right? It's not so much about do we consume a more sustainable um, brand than a less sustainable brand, but the first question we should always ask is whether it is possible for us to consume less. So then let's turn to this question that you asked about what are um, consumers willing to do and, and what are they unwilling to do. And in some ways, I think the question of willingness can be a little bit um, can be a little bit misleading. It suggests that consumers are stubborn and unwilling to make sacrifices um, in in favor of sustainability or or to better the climate. If we look at what the research says, it's probably fairer to say that for many consumers, it's it's difficult to identify what the best courses of action are. So there were, was a series of studies, for example, um, where researchers surveyed consumers and they asked consumers, what are the most impactful things that you could do to uh, reduce your energy consumption or reduce your water consumption? And consumers tended to identify um, what, are, what are known as curtailment activities. So curtailing their behaviors, like turning off the lights, taking shorter showers, turning off the water when they're brushing their teeth, turning down the thermostat on, uh, in their house. When they asked, when the researchers asked the experts the same question, though, what the experts said is that the most impactful um, behaviors involve efficiency improvements. So things like uh, replacing appliances with more water efficient uh, appliances, um, installing heat pumps um, rather than old furnaces and air conditioners, um, buying electric vehicles rather than um, traditional fossil fuel consuming vehicles mm. and so on. So a large part of the challenge for consumers is that what they think might be especially effective is not necessarily the most effective things. And it can sometimes be difficult to tell what actually is the best course of action. How does that translate into water? Are there some water conservation steps you found that people are generally willing to take and some they aren't? Well, again, the, there are a number of steps that are relatively easy to take, and we hear about these whenever we are in the midst of uh, uh, of an acute sort of water crisis. So we hear that we should take, um, you know, shorter showers, turn off the water when we're brushing our teeth, let our lawns go brown, and and so on. All of those behaviors are um, relatively easy to adopt in the short term. And many people are willing to do them because again, consumers care about the environment. They care about sustainability, but over the long term, those curtailment activities are going to have less of an impact than things like installing new appliances, you know, installing new washing machines, as we just heard about in the story, installing new toilets, zero escaping uh, a lawn and so on. Part of the problem, though, is that for many consumers, those changes are really expensive and um, and are and are likely to be out of reach, both because of cost or if you don't own your own home, you often can't make those kind of renovations that would really have a much larger impact. How much do you feel peer pressure plays into all of this? 
Yeah, well, peer pressure can can work in in a number of, of directions. So in in some places, like uh, where I live in Boulder, there's a lot of peer pressure, um, social norms, we might refer to it, um, to, to reduce our water consumption. It would definitely be frowned upon if you left the tap running while you're brushing your teeth, or if in the midst of a drought when everyone else is conserving water, um, you had an incredibly lush lawn uh, because you were watering extensively. In other communities, the peer pressure can be different. Um, in other communities, there might be a lot of value on relatively high water consumption, having everything look um, green and mm. and lush, even in the midst of a drought. So peer pressure is definitely something that, that we as consumers respond to, but it can work both ways, sometimes increasing more sustainable behavior and sometimes kind of working against it. Did the pandemic change the likelihood that someone would make a sustainable consumer choice? For example, did one huge disaster eclipse another in our decision making? Yeah, that, that great question. And and the implications of the pandemic, we're, we're really just starting to, to realize. And um, I, I want to kind of broaden the answer so that's not just about water, but about climate-friendly behaviors generally and sustainability generally. And I think we can see a couple of important lessons from the way we responded to, to the pandemic. First of all, we were able to transform the way society operated in a really short period of time. Who knew that we could move so much of our work lives to a fully um, remote modality to mm. cut down on transportation? Um, that should lead us to be more ambitious in how we think about restructuring society for a more sustainable future. At the same time, the massive change in the way we operated by increasing social distance, reducing social contact, uh, reducing economic activity had really negative impacts on so many aspects of society. You can look at the spike in mental health crises, um, the loss in education, um, among among many students who simply weren't able to learn as well in that remote uh, environment, um, mm. the loss of relationships and social contact. And so even though it's possible to make these changes really quickly and to do so on a large scale, we really need to weigh that against the potential costs of implementing those changes. As we wrap up, what do you think it takes to change people's behavior in a meaningful way? So we want to think about this through two lenses. One lens is the lens of the individual consumer behavior. And one of the things we need to do is we need to make it really easy for people to understand what are the more sustainable um, choices that they make in their everyday consumption behavior. So we need to provide people with clear, reliable, trustworthy information about the environmental impact of their consumption decisions. Yeah, so the, the, the second lens, and in some ways the much more important lens, is that we need to think about systems level change in terms of large scale changes in policy and industry practice. And this is something that individual consumers have relatively little direct impact on beyond their advocacy as citizens. We can vote for politicians who are going to enact more sustainable policies. Um, and also as citizens, we can lobby for meaningful policy change that will for example, put a price on carbon emissions and 
um, provide incentives for more renewable energy and low energy alternatives and more sustainable water use alternatives. So we really need to think about both of those things operating at the same time, the individual level changes and the systems level changes. Leif, thank you. You're welcome. It's great to be on. Leif Van Boven is a professor in psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder. He studies environmental decision-making. Researchers at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo in Colorado Springs recently took a trip to Wyoming to release more than 200 rare toads into the wild. Before that, KRCC's Mike Procell visit the zoo, visited the zoo to find out why. That's the sound of toads recorded at the Mortensen National Wildlife Refuge in Wyoming. It's the mating call of the Wyoming toad, played for others recently residing at the zoo in order to encourage them to, well, hop to it. Biologist Jeff Bauman says several decades ago, these toads were thought to be nearly extinct due to a number of factors. One of the biggest threats to amphibians is the chytrid fungus. What happens is it, um, once it's on the frog's skin, it builds up so thick to where they cannot osmoregulate anymore, and in about four weeks, they'll suffocate and die. Bauman's work, in part, is to help ensure Wyoming toads will breed and produce the most genetically hardy offspring. This is our hibernaculum right here. It's a fancy double door uh, restaurant fridge. So when we check on them, we usually do a little bit of a mist just to check and see how they're doing. We'll close that up so it keeps its temperature. The cool temps approximate the time the toads spend underground, which then triggers hormone production. And now that some of those toads have been released into the wild, Bauman says they hope the process encourages more breeding. And hopefully quicker generations of that occurring that will adapt to the chytrid fungus faster. He says working with the toads is important because, like all amphibians, they're an indicator species. They tell you if the environment and the ecosystem is happy and healthy. Unfortunately, when they start to decline, you know that there are some issues going on. The team went back to Wyoming to release almost 2,000 tadpoles. Bauman says a recent survey of the Wyoming toads found the animals in all life stages in the Laramie Basin. Official tallies won't be reported until the end of the year, but he says he's encouraged. With the zoo's efforts and others, he estimates three to 400 Wyoming toads now live in the wild. I'm Mike Purcell, KRCC News. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. So you'd like to know more about classical music? One way is to look at music through a theme, like animals in classical music. That's a lumbering elephant. Or maybe the theme is music used in Saturday morning cartoons. That's from the cartoon The Wabbit of Seville. I'm Carla Walker. Join me for a new way to look and listen to classical music every weekday at 1030 in the Music Room. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. While UPK, or Universal Preschool, has had a bumpy start for some adults, what do some four-year-olds think about it? CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine had some parents interview their little ones before and after their first day of preschool. 
Oh, oh, what's something new you get to do this year? We were talking about it today. The lunchroom. The lunchroom. That's where the big kids go. Four-year-old Runes already checked out the menu. Chicken strips. Or mac and cheese. Rune's not deciding between the two. I'm going to stir them together. Stir them together. Oh, I love that idea. Is there something you're most excited about for school this year? Do you know what excited means? No. A thing that makes you the happiest about school this Mom, year. Look. But the thing these preschoolers are excited about the most? Friends. Uh, are my friends going to be there? Yeah, all your friends are going to be there. All of my Miss Chelsea's friends. All of your Miss Chelsea's friends. Elijah's in your class. Another preschooler, Serafina, had a very clear idea of why she was going to preschool. Hi, Serafina. Hi. So, how old are you? Four. So, you're starting preschool tomorrow? Yes. What do you think you're going to learn? Um, alphabet. Then there's Louie. He's the inquisitive type. He's got a lot of questions about this preschool thing. His mom tells him he has a new teacher for preschool. I think it's a she. Good. Good. You want to be a she? Yeah. Thank you. Like me, like mommy? Yeah. He'll miss his mom. He tells her he wants to bring his backpack and his nap stuff because there'll be rest time. His brother tells him, hey, it'll be similar to last year. But you're going to learn new things. But who's Miss Daniel? We'll meet her on Friday, then you'll know who she is. Louie's not sure about this new teacher. On Friday, on the way to meeting their teachers, Louie and his older brother are in distinctly different moods. I'm so excited! You're excited? I'm not really. So I'm not going to do it. You Wait. said you wanted to live there. School. Louie said he wanted to live there. No, you don't. That's weird. Just in that minute? Louis still having doubts. Soon, the first day of preschool arrives. Serafina's mom is driving her to school. Are we at my school? Just about. You're getting nervous? No. <laughs> Serafina says she's definitely never nervous at school. Over at Louis's house, before the first day... Are you excited or sad to go to school? A long time passes before he answers. I can hear the dog lapping his water. Finally, happy. He's trying so hard to be happy. It's just not there. I'm gonna miss you. I think you're gonna have a great day. He can't quite bring himself to say his affirmation, so his mom says it. I am loved. Of course, it wouldn't be the first day of preschool without a few tears. Off Louie goes. It's a big morning for mom, too. Let's check back with the other kids. Rune has a special drawing from the first day. Big side for ants and a little side for ants. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. It's an anthill. As for the school lunch, Rune declares, amazingly... Really? When you want milk, you get milk. So much happens in preschool, it can be hard to recall what you learned. Did you learn anything today? I don't know. You don't know? 
Mom, what's it called again? What is what called again? What you learned? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't in school with you. Did you learn about astrophysics? Uh, rocket science, right? Mm-mm. No? Oh. Did you maybe sing a song? No singing at all? I did. Oh, but you did. it was a scarf song. A scarf song? So you got to scarf dance at school? Yeah. What color scarf did you get? Orange. Oh, my gosh. It's one of your favorite colors. It is one of my favorite colors. In Denver, Serafina's mom picks her up. You learned how to grow pumpkins? That's cool. Are you she played with puzzles, them? toy cars, and went to a park that was broken but found another one. What else did you do? Hmm. She had a good lunch. Banana. Banana. And cucumbers. Cucumbers. And ketchup. And ketchup. <laughs> That sounds like an interesting lunch. Oh, one thing she forgot. No, I don't remember my sheets Oh, okay, you're going to have to learn that. You're going to have to figure that out. But Serafina notices another really hard worker, the lunch lady. And she's so busy. Yeah. <laughs> that does sound pretty busy. That's a lot We're going to check in with a new boy, Sully. What's something that's hard at preschool? Um, swing. The swing is hard? Hmm? Preschool is not only a time to practice skills like swinging, it's also a time to practice sharing, paying attention, listening, speaking, and soccer. Then, then, then run super hard, then, then take the words from a friend, then, then, then... There's so many steps in soccer. Then, 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 hooray! Let's see how Louie's doing, if he made it through the day. First thing out of his mouth. I ate two sandwiches. Did you have a good day? Really good. It was really good? Like, I cannot believe it. It was gooder than I thought it would be. Yeah? I thought it would be bored, but it's not bored. He says he was a good listener and patient. He went outside. He guessed animal sounds. It's not like my regular It's way faster. Yeah. You ate. Louis says, though, his favorite part of the day was napping. The sheer exhaustion of it all. Some things never get old. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. these little scholars and to read more about Colorado's new universal preschool program, visit us at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. 
And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.